Good evening. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 31. And if you're using the red pew Bibles that are there in front of you, it's on page 461. As we approach this psalm this evening, let's pray together. Father, You are light, and in You there is no darkness at all. You have given us Your Word, and it is perfect. And we pray this evening that as we come to Your Word, that You would search us, that You would know us, that You would sanctify us. Lord, if any are not in Christ, would You grab them by the heart and draw them to Yourself? Lord, for us who know the Lord Jesus, would You sanctify us? Would You give us all that we need for life and godliness? Would You build us up by Your most holy Word and by the powerful work of Your Holy Spirit? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would stand with me. It's a longer reading this evening, but as you hear Psalm 31, uh, pay attention to the, the, the wonderful and insightful way in which David sees and expresses our suffering and also the powerful way in which he hopes in the Lord and sees His grace to us. Well, see with me in Psalm 31. Hear the word of the Lord. To the choir master, a psalm of David. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who regard, who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of my enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord. For I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief. My soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in You, O Lord. I say You are my God. My times are in Your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make Your face shine on Your servant. Save me in Your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon You. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the, lips, let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is Your goodness, which You have stored up for those who fear You, and work for those who take refuge in You, in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of Your presence You hide them from the plots of men. 
You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for He has wondrously shown His steadfast love to me. When I was in a besieged city, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you His saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong. Let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we come to another psalm of David, and there's yet another problem that he's facing. And and what is the problem this time? Well, we don't know exactly. The most vivid descriptions of it are in verses 11 and 13. There are adversaries for David who are scheming against him and who are lying about him and are trying to kill him. And this time, the enemies are coming at him in such a way that David is a reproach to everyone. Uh, His neighbors, his acquaintances don't want to be around him. They're in dread and they flee from him. Now, this could be because of the lies that the enemies are telling about him, or it could be because of the power of these enemies. They don't want to be in striking distance of these bad guys that are after David. And so they are withdrawing from him in this time of need. And so this could refer to a number of situations in David's life. Maybe it's after the third time that Saul threw a spear at him and he went back home to take refuge with his wife, Michal. And Saul, King Saul sent his soldiers after David to spy him out. And his wife uh, uh, made, uh, made something in the bed so that it looked like he was there and David snuck out to get away from them. Or it could have been the time that Absalom uh, organized an uprising against his father. And David, when he was king, had to escape from the land. There could be a number of situations that this could refer to. But the point here is that David's life is in danger. And at the same time, he is isolated and lonely. There's no human help in sight for him. He can only rely on the Lord. So the question is, what is David going to do? Well, he's going to pray. And it's going to sound like this. In our Psalm 31, David is going to pour his heart out to the Lord and show us his commitment to the Lord. And so see with me three things as we look at this psalm this evening. And and I'm going to spend a, a majority of our time on this first point here. See the request that David makes and the resolve that he has in verses one through eight. First, see a request for help in verses one through two. Uh, These verses start with the same kind of request that you hear often in the Psalms. Uh, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Uh, In fact, these verses, almost word for word, uh, the the words of uh, verses one through three are quoted at the beginning of Psalm 71. And it's a reminder for us, the Psalms are worth repeating. Even the Psalms repeat themselves, and we should repeat the Psalms in our prayers. David calls God his refuge, his rock of refuge, and his strong fortress. And he asks the Lord to never put him to shame, to instead deliver him and to rescue him speedily. 
what a wonderful description of God. God is a rock and a rescuer. The image of a rock is like a powerful fortress wall around a city or a, or a, or a palace of some kind. Or perhaps it's the image of a mountain. With God, you have the might of a mountain. And, and that is what is behind you uh, to work in your life. The Lord sanctifies you. The Lord helps you to do all His holy will. The Lord is with you in time of great need. But God at the same time is not immobile. He doesn't just passively protect. He actively rescues you. He moves and He works for His people. Come up against God and He crushes you. But come to Him in repentance and faith, and He covers you. He comforts you. He conceals you. And He combats all those who would seek to harm your soul. That is our God. That is our rock and our refuge. And He is the one that David knows. David knows this and it drives him to make his requests for help of the Lord. But see also in verses 3-5, through the resolve to hope in God. Again, in verse 3, God, uh, David calls God his rock and his fortress and his refuge in verse 4. But, but enthroned between those attributes that David talks about is this truth in verse 3. For your namesake, you lead me and guide me. Now that's a remarkable thing for David to say, especially when he's in the middle of life and death suffering. We've heard these words before in Psalm 23, that God leads us in the paths of righteousness for His own namesake. Isn't this counterintuitive comfort in some ways? Uh, wouldn't we think perhaps that David might pray, you're the God that always gets me out of trouble. You're the God who ends suffering the second I ask it. But no, that's not what David prays. The prosperity gospel folks would say yes, but that's not the way life works. It's not the way the Lord works. David knows that God will glorify His own name in David's life. And that means that everything that these adversaries mean for evil against David, God will turn for His own glory and for David's good. It may mean suffering for David, and here in this psalm, it does. It may even mean David's death. But God, through this process, will sanctify. He will strengthen His people when He leads them through suffering. He will build up His church. He will take us to Himself, all in His mysterious means. David says, they have hidden a net for me. Uh, it's out there somewhere. They have laid a trap for me. But he's praying, Lord, you lead me for your name's sake. And, and David thinks if it's the Lord's will, then the Lord will lead him through the darkness where nets and traps are all around. And it doesn't mean that David's going to close his eyes and just walk through the woods. And we don't presume on God's providence for us, but it is as if David's praying, if the net catches me, You'll either get me out or you'll bring me to you. If they get me, I'm coming to you or you will rescue me out of your hand. 
David knows all of this, and therefore David can have strong hope because he's able to go to the Lord and ask for rescue, but he knows that even if the Lord doesn't rescue him from this attack, then the Lord is only going to bring him to himself. And what confidence this gives David. Do you have this confidence? Do you know that whatever the Lord does in your life, He does it for His glory and for your good? Well, all of, a, all of this brings us to this wonderful resolve in verse 5. David says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. And he continues, You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. It's an incredible statement for David to make. David commits his spirit into the Lord's hand, which is another way of talking about his whole life. I give my whole life over to you, Lord. We are two parts as people. We are body and soul. Soul and spirit are interchangeable. And and when David is saying that he entrusts his spirit to the Lord, it's not as if David's saying, I trust my spirit to you, but not my body. You might kill that. You might lose that. That's not what he's saying. David is saying that he entrusts his whole self to the Lord. Now, it's interesting, this phrase that David uses, into your hand I commit my spirit. It may sound familiar to you. Jesus quotes verse 5, the beginning of it, while he's on the cross. In Luke 23, verse 46, he says, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. The first thing we should notice here is that Jesus on the cross in his most desperate and terrible pain-filled moment, he's praying and he's taking the words of the Psalms on his lips. Jesus is teaching us to take the Psalms as the vocabulary for our prayers. Do you struggle to pray? Even when you're in difficult times and you wonder, I don't even know what to say. I don't know how to express my grief. I don't know how to call out to the Lord. I'm kind of out of words. I feel out of emotions. What do I do? The Lord has given you help. He's given you a whole book, the Bible, and He's given you a book within that book, the Psalms, to serve as the vocabulary for your prayers. Take these words on your lips. Let them go down, sink down into your heart and pour them out before the Lord. Jesus takes these words on his lips on the cross. Now, when David prayed these words, uh, David meant not that he was on the brink of death, but that he is committed to the Lord, whether whether he lives or dies, whether he lives or dies. That's what David means by this. But Jesus is on the cross. Jesus is about to give up His Spirit to the Father. And it's an incredible look to to think about that moment. It's It's an incredible look into who Jesus is. Jesus is true man and true God. Jesus is eternal God. He has taken to Himself a true body as well, which includes a reasonable soul, just like you and I have. And so on the cross... He's about to die. And his soul and his body will separate. His body will be laid in the tomb and his soul will ascend and be with God the Father. His body is in the grave, but only for three days. And on the Lord's day, Jesus will walk out 
of the tomb, body and soul, and therefore fully and truly human, and at the same time fully and truly God. What a Savior we have. And this is true for all of us who die trusting in Christ, that this part that if you die, there is this tragic and strange separation between the body and the soul. Your soul goes to be with the Lord. And that is wonderful. We go to be in the immediate presence of God. But your body is committed to the earth to return to the dust. But this is so important, not to be lost. One day, when Christ returns, the soul of every believer that has been with the Father uh, in the paradise of heaven will be reunited with a glorified, perfected body as Jesus was when He rose from the grave. And we will always be with the Lord. You know, it's interesting, in Acts 7, in verse 59, after Stephen, uh, the deacon who, who preached the gospel, uh, as he's finished his sermon, uh, and, and those uh, who have hated to hear his word and hate the Lord Jesus and his gospel begin to stone him to death. What does Stephen say? He, said, he looks up and says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen said, Lord Jesus. And maybe you think, Stephen, did you misquote Psalm 31? Well, no, he didn't. He just properly applied it. It's an amazing statement about Jesus' divinity. That uh, Jesus, that David said, Father into, well, David didn't say Father, but he committed his spirit to the Lord's hands. Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen said, Jesus, I commit my spirit to you. It's a strong statement about Jesus' divinity. But we might wonder, well, wait a minute, whose hands are we in? Are we in the Son's hands? Are we in the Father's hands? Well, the answer to that question is yes. These three are one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Jesus said to his disciples in John 10 when he was talking about himself as the good shepherd, he said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. This is talking about you. So this should excite you. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand, the Lord Jesus. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And Jesus, if people were paying attention, is going to answer their question. Wait a minute, I thought you said we're in your hand. Are we in your hand or your Father's hand? And he says, I and the Father are one. Brothers and sisters, what good hands we're in. You can entrust your every day, your every moment, your every joy, your every suffering, your every sorrow into the hand of your faithful God and Father, your faithful Lord and Jesus. God holds you if you have trusted in Christ, and He will not let you go. The rest of verse 5 is wonderful. Into your hand I commit my spirit. And then David says, You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I think it's wonderful that David records his prayers in all their desperation. You, you go as low with David as he went. But then David also records his answers to prayer 
in all the joy that he experienced. You go with David in his lows and his highs. And he sings of the fact that God has redeemed him. Redeemed, he's paid the ransom price to save him. And in this, David rejoices. And look at how affectionately David speaks of Yahweh here. Oh Lord, faithful God is what he calls him. The Hebrew word translated faithful here is much more often translated truth. So this might well read, O Lord, God of truth. David's saying, I may be surrounded by lies, but I can trust every one of your words. Doesn't that want to make you, brothers and sisters, go to the word of the Lord? It's always true. And it's always exactly what you need. You may not understand everything that you're reading the first time that you read it, but it's always good for us. And so we are to press in to the Word. We are to go to the Lord and ask Him for insight, for the Holy Spirit to shine His light on this Word. We're to go to godly people and listen to preaching and teaching to receive insight until we grow and grow more and more in this Word. When verses 6 through 8, David transitions a little bit here and he begins with very hard words. David says, and it may surprise us as we read the flow of his argument, but he says, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. What is David doing here? Well, David is siding with God and not his enemies. Uh, Idolaters hate God. And God hates them. David is committed. He will not try to relieve his suffering by selling out and siding with the wicked and say, okay, I give up. I'm on your side now. I'll I'll leave aside all of this me seeking the Lord and trying to do his will. David, and so therefore David sides with God and hates those who commit idolatry. Now, for for us, how should we think about something like this? Well, this isn't a statement that's anti-evangelism. This is about our association. And we talk about this a lot as we read the Psalms. Certainly, you want to share the gospel with non-believers. And you want to love them by praying for them and telling them the truth. And you have to work with non-believers and be a good neighbor to them. But we don't just hang out with people who are idolaters and think that we'll subtly, gently be a good influence on them. And we don't just befriend people who don't love the Lord and hope that they'll bring up the gospel with us eventually, maybe, when they're interested. No, we are kind to those who do not know the Lord, but we also, there's a need for us to be very clear about who we are and who our Lord is and what their standing is before the Lord if they go on rejecting Him. The Scriptures are very strong on this. First John ends, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And we're reminded that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And you think, man, if you think that way, sometimes it might make you really lonely where you are. Well, friends, that's exactly where David is. David is in a lonely place. He's surrounded by enemies, and even some of his friends are deserting him, his neighbors. But listen to what David says in verse 7, the second part there. 
He says, you have known the distress of my soul. What a comfort that is. That whatever your soul's distress, the Lord knows. He has seen your affliction and help is not far away. Now, what kind of affliction might David be talking about? Well, he gives us more detail in the next section here. See with me in verses 9 through 18, surrounded but secure. In in verses 9 and 10, David gives a physical description of his grief. And it's powerful. David's grief surrounds him and almost overwhelms him. How distressed is David? Uh, His eye is wasted. That that means that it's it's fragile. It's near breaking point, probably because of the tears that he's been crying. He says his soul, his body, his life are wasted with grief. His years spent with sorrow. He's saying, I'm all out of tears. I'm emotionally empty. He says his bones waste away. The, The verb there is used of things that have been eaten by moth or by worms. He feels dead inside and out. This is comprehensive grief. It's grief that goes all the way down to your bones. And friends, you should think here that if you know grief like this, if if you hear this and you resonate with this kind of sadness and this kind of pain, see here how well your God sees you and how well your God knows you in your grief. Take comfort, even in this very difficult description, that the Lord knows His children, His frail children of dust, and feeble as frail. We sang this morning, in Him you can trust, because you won't find Him to fail. His mercies, how tender, how firm till the end our Maker, Defender, Redeemer, and Friend. That is your God. He knows your suffering inside and out. And He's there with you through all of it. Well, what kind of suffering did David face? When verses 11 through 13, he describes this specific dilemma. His adversaries, and maybe it's Saul's forces who he sent after him, or it's some other enemy They've made it such that David's neighbors don't want anything to do with him. They see me and they flee, he says in verse 11. David's surrounded by enemies, but notice he's also surrounded by neighbors, but even those neighbors don't want to be around him. So again, he's lonely, he's isolated, and yet remember back in verse 7 that even when people see David and flee, David can say, Lord, you have seen my affliction and God has not fled. And God won't run from you either in your affliction. He is with you through it all. And so in verses 14 and 18, after surveying his situation, and by the way, this is something that you should do in your prayers too. This is a good use of your prayer time is to tell the Lord what's going on. To look over the difficulties, the struggles, perhaps the joys and successes in your life, to survey those before the Lord, to bring them all to Him, whether to thank Him or to plead with Him, to lift burdens from you. We survey our situation 
And then David makes supplication for himself. All while he rests secure in the Lord's kindness. Look at verse 15. David says, My times are in your hand. Isn't that such a helpful way of putting this truth that we've been talking about? Whatever comes to me, whether it's lovely or whether it's trying, it's from the hand of the Lord. And and as we discussed uh, this wonderful truth earlier, we are in the Lord's hands. But all of these things, all of these difficulties come to us from the hand of the Lord. The, The Heidelberg Catechism has a really wonderful way of putting this for us. In in question 27, it's answering the question, what do you understand by the providence of God? How, How are we to think about what the Lord gives us? And this is the answer. God's providence is His almighty and His ever present power, whereby with His hand, He still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures. And so He governs them whether it's leaf on the tree or blade of grass. And God governs rain or drought, fruitful or barren years, food and drink, health or sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come, not by chance, but by His, listen to this, by His fatherly hand. Everything comes to you not by the hand of some dispassionate God that deism made up, where God put everything together and then ran away and fled. And things come to us not by the the Roman and Greek gods that we talked about uh, this morning uh, that are so much like us. Uh, In fact, men made them up. uh, uh, But they don't come to us by sudden and strange whims. No, everything comes to us by the kind hand of our Father. Well, we'll see this contrast then with, with all this that David has in mind in verse 15. David says, rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my pursuers. David sees the hand of the enemy, but he is looking to a stronger hand, the hand of the Lord. And we should remember here that the world can have its hands surrounding you, trying to tempt you, trying to discourage you, trying to force you down. But remember, as, uh, as, as Jeff prayed earlier, the everlasting arms are underneath you to uphold you. And so here in, in these verses uh, 15 through 18, David calls for a reversal. He says, turn my enemy's shame back on them. See how bold his prayer is. You can pray boldly to the Lord. Those who sought to kill him, make them go to the grave instead. You see, his prayer is extreme, but he is, after all, in an extreme situation. His enemies have lying lips, but David trusts that God can make his face shine on him. He can save David in his steadfast love. And friends, the same is true for us. Well, David, even though he's surrounded by enemies and without much earthly help, uh, he still stands secure because his time, uh, his times are in God's hand. It doesn't make David forget his trouble. He's still praying, but it fills him with confidence. And so see next, finally, in our last section, that David has courage because God has covered him. In verses 19 and 20, it paints this very interesting picture. 
David rejoices that God has abundant goodness and that it is stored up like a treasure for those who fear the Lord. But it's stored up, which usually means if you store something up, if you hide it away, then you can't see it. Or at least you can't see the whole thing. And verse 20 makes this point even further. In the cover of your presence, you hide them. That is, you hide your abundant goodness from uh, from them. Uh, from the plots of men. They're stored up, they're sheltered from the strife of tongues. What's going on here? Well, David has this wonderful perspective that when God does not appear to be working, when God does not in fact, appear to be answering your prayers. He is. When enemies gloat over David, saying, where are those mercies of God that you're talking about? David knows that they are stored up for him and that God will reveal them. God will uncover them one day in a flood of mercy and grace on his head. That the Lord covers his people. Enemies don't see that. They think God is slow or not listening at all. They don't see and they don't understand that God is patient. Now, does this remind you of Jesus on the cross? The the men wagged their head at Jesus. They said, He trusts in the Lord. Let Him deliver Him there on the cross. And in in that moment, it looked like the scoffers were right. Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. And then it is finished. And then suddenly the first hint that the scoffers were wrong, the sky is black and the earth quakes. Dead people rise to life. The veil of the temple is torn from top to bottom. The Roman soldier says, surely this man is the Son of God. And then there's a quiet Saturday before on Sunday a storm of grace. The the storehouses of the Lord are open and Jesus rises to life, seen by hundreds of witnesses. The lamb who was slain killed death, was victorious over sin, the grave, and hell. The Lord was, what was He doing? He was only concealing His mercies for a moment, waiting to reveal His glory at the proper time and to pour out His blessing. And so David is trusting the Lord that if the Lord tarries during his suffering, that his mercies are just being concealed until the proper time where the Lord will gain glory. And the, the Lord will be glorified for what he has done. And David can trust that through all of this, he himself is covered by the Lord. When verses 21 and 22, David has these wonderful words here as we conclude. Blessed be the Lord, for He has wondrously shown His steadfast love to me. You hear the relief here that David expresses. David reflects here on an event when Israel was besieged, when he thought he was cut off from the side of the Lord. Uh, but, But David ends with this instruction. He calls out to the saints, Love the Lord, all you His saints. And the question for us as we come to the end of the psalm is, do you love Him? Do you see His greatness? Do you see His faithfulness to His children? Draw near to Him. Now, Calvin thinks that uh, exclusivity is in view here when David calls on them to love the Lord. He's saying, love the Lord, not idols, like the idols mentioned back in verse 6. And and then these next verses, 
um, David is pressing all the people. You have a choice to make. And David gives a contrast in verse 23. The Lord preserves the faithful, but he abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. There's a warning here. This is what David has seen. God will preserve him through every trial until he takes David to glory with him. But the wicked, those who act in pride, they will receive from the Lord too. The Lord has stores for the wicked as well. He has wrath stored up for those who do not repent and seek the Lord. And the payment is abundant, it says, for the wicked. Not because it's more than the wicked deserve. It's abundant because their pride is abundant. Their sin is overwhelming and they will receive what they deserve. And so what are all people called to do? We're to come to Christ. We're to trust in Him. How can someone be one of the faithful that David spoke about there? The Lord preserves the faithful. How can we be one of those? Well, it's Christ, not us. We come to Him confessing our sin, that we have no righteousness of our own. We have no right to be called faithful sons and daughters of the Lord. And if we come to Jesus confessing our sin, what does He do? He clothes us in His righteousness. He, the one who is faithful, calls us faithful. He declares us so. And by His Spirit, He teaches us to walk in faithfulness so that we learn to repent when we are unfaithful, so that we are not defined by our pride. We are trying to kill it. We wage war against it. And so David closes with these powerful words in verse 24. Be strong. Let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Three wonderful verbs here. And it's worth letting this verse play in your head throughout this week. First, be strong. And that is, be strong in the Lord. Go to the Lord for your strength. Go to Him in prayer. Seek Him in His Word. Draw strength from Him. And, and then further, take courage. And how do you do this? This isn't, this isn't the language of the self-help speakers and the motivational gurus find courage somewhere deep down inside yourself and scoop some of that up. That's not what he's saying here. Take courage by trusting in the Lord. Uh, look to Him. Read of His promises. See that those promises in the Word are for you if you have trusted in Christ. And take courage because He is faithful. He is the Lord God, faithful and true, and He will not fail on any one of His promises. And then finally, wait for the Lord. And you might think, that's a, of, the, of that trio, that's a weird one to end on. Be strong. Take courage. These sound like we're about to start cheering. And then he says, wait. Slow down a little bit. Why, why, does, he, why does he say that? And why does he end with it? Well, we end by recognizing, by seeing that we live on God's time and not ours. Our times are, are in God's hand. Our lives are in God's hand. When we don't see His mercies, He's just waiting for the right time. 
we look to Him. And this actually is what gives us courage. This is what allows us to be strong by waiting on the Lord, by seeing that He is the one who is sovereign. He is the one who rules. He is the one who holds all things in His hands. And brothers and sisters, if you've trusted in Christ, He holds you in His hand. And friends, there is no better place to be. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank You that by Christ You are with us and for us. That You forgive our sin. You forgive our pride. You forgive our self-seeking. Our sin that reaches up to the heavens. You sent Christ to be our perfect high priest, to be the sacrifice for our sins, the Lamb who was slain so that we might be forgiven. Oh Lord, help us to place all of our trust in Him. Lord, when we feel assailed, when we face the difficulties and even tragedies of life, help us to trust Christ who meets us with real comfort and real help in time of need, who is our patient, loving shepherd, who picks us up and carries us and who tells us to wait for the right time, whether that is deliverance and, and light in this life or whether it is us meeting you face to face in glory. Oh Lord, you have such good news for us. You have such wonderful, gracious provision for us. All of it comes to us from your kind fatherly hand. Oh Father, help us to trust you Help us to love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.